Good morning, all. It is so great to get to open the Word of God together with fear and with trembling and with awe and with wonder. I was talking to a couple of guys. We're um, talking about preaching and what it is, and we were marveling at how it looks so ordinary and so natural. The reality is kids can play and people can fall asleep and somebody can come to life and hear from the living God. All because his word is open and God's voice in this moment comes through the voice of an unworthy preacher, but he is going to be speaking. And so it's our privilege to listen and to respond with hearts of worship, with hearts of obedience We've just started a new series called Christ is King. We're talking about all of Jesus and all of life. Last week we were in Colossians chapter 1 and we were talking about the preeminence of Christ, that all things were created in him and through him and for him and that all of our life belongs to him. He is king over every part of our life. And so now for the next 15 to 20 weeks, I don't even, I can't remember, We're going through Christ as king in all of life. And we're starting with us as individuals. We're going into our families and the church and over all the world. So today we're talking about Christ being king over our members, over the members of our body. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple of verses for us that we're going to mainly dive into. Uh, But then we're going to spend time first before we take a deep dive into those verses in all of Romans 6 so we have the context and the truth for what enables this kind of obedience in us with regards to the members of our bodies. Romans 6, verse 12 and 13 say, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, we thank you for your living word and for the truths that we've been singing about. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, our God, would die for us, would come and unite us to yourself in your death and in your life so that we could no longer be slaves to sin but live before you as sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, together we unite our hearts and pray that you would come and search us and try us and see if there be any hurtful way in us. God, come and convict us concerning sin Lord, would you assure us of your victory and your goodness to us in the gospel? I pray that our hearts would be inflamed with worship and with faith and that we would rise up from here with hearts to honor you and to obey you in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if, if you've been in any kind of Bible study uh, teaching, you've been taught that when you see a therefore... You need to see what it's there for, right? We can't just start, don't just start with the verse that says, therefore, go do this without understanding what's the preceding verses. What what is God saying that sets up this call to action and obedience on our part? And all of Paul's letters and much of exhortations in the gospel are structured this way. There's these declarative truths about who Christ is and what he has done. And then there's this hinge to say, therefore, here's how to walk this faith out. Here's what to do with it. Um, So this verse 13 says, as those who have been brought from death to life. He's, He's drawing on what he's just said in the preceding 10 verses. But the truth is, We already have been brought from death into life. When when Paul wants to combat believers taking advantage of the grace of God, he's just talked about grace in Romans chapter 5, and it's so amazing, so gracious. 
where God is glorified in extending grace to sinners. And when you sin and he extends more grace to you, he's shown to be more gracious and gets more glory. So then the idea would be, well, then maybe we should just sin so that God gets more glory in getting to exhibit his grace. So the answer to that kind of thinking Paul gives us is our union with Christ. That the, the truth of the gospel is not just that Christ died for us. That is gloriously and wonderfully true. But the gospel is also the amazing news that we died with Christ and that we've been united with him in his death and in his resurrection and that when he raised us as new creations, we belong to him. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. So look back with me starting in verse 1. We're not getting into this whole text today, so I'm going to give us some comments and commentary as we go as we're mainly diving in to the implications of verse 13. But I want to make sure that we know some things. And I want you to pay attention to Paul calling them. I want you to know these things. If you're going to live in light of it, you need to know it first. So Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, this is the reason why, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, there it is again, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the reason why our old self was united to Christ in his death so that you would no longer be a slave to sin. You need to know that. Now, if we have died with Christ, oh, sorry, verse seven, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Drop down with me to verse 15. He says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? There it is again. You need to know something. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that Though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This text is saying that you have died, if you're a believer in Christ, you have died with him by being united to him by faith. So that when Christ died on the cross, your own self was crucified with him and you were no longer a slave to sin. Death is no longer master over Jesus. Sin is not master over him. And when we died with him, we were raised with him by faith to walk in the newness of his life. 
We saw last week that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And we are now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. You were buried with Christ as a slave of sin, ensnared and held captive by the devil to do his will. And now you died with him, the self that was a slave to the enemy and a slave to sin has died. And you've been raised to walk as a new creation, a slave of God. And this word for slave means slave. It's, it's doulos. It's actual slavery. It says one impermanent relationship of servitude to another, his will altogether consumed in the will of another. Your will consumed by his will. You, you have taken off sinful man that's been crucified with Christ, the one that had a will that had its own optionality, could do whatever it wanted, but it was enslaved to yourself, enslaved to your passions and desires. And what this text is saying is when you place your trust in Christ, that old man was crucified with Christ and now you're raised as a slave of God. Your will altogether consumed by the will of God where you can cry out with a true heart, this is the truest freedom because you don't have to say it and be lying. You don't have to be convincing yourself that it's true. You get to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done and actually have the freedom to mean it and to walk in it because he who has died has been set free from sin. In the beginning of Romans, he says, as our calling, we've been called to belong to Christ Jesus. This is a calling on our life. I belong to him. My life for his See, the enemy deceives people into believing that we can be in control of our own lives and that there's somehow some neutral space where we can, we can be in control and uh, that there's, there's freedom out here. But the reality is you're a slave. You're either a slave of the devil or you're a slave of God. Those are the only options for anybody in the world. And people can think, that's not true. I'm free to do what I want. But that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. It's just you're living in guised slavery, held captive by the enemy to do his will, and it looks like doing your will. But Christ has accomplished victory for his people at the cross, both in atoning for our sin and our guilt, and by virtue of our union with him, he's given us victory over our old nature in putting it to death on the cross. It's to say, know this, know this, know this. This is true. This has happened. You need to know this. Do you not know? Maybe some of your slavery to sins because you didn't know this, that your old self has died with Christ and that you've been raised to walk in newness of life. But slavery to God is the truest form of freedom. At least the life and joy and sanctification is the outcome of living in sin is death. And so then we get to this part. You'll notice I skipped over this hinge of this text so the second thing that we need, to, we need to know, so you need to know that you've been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And second, we must consider it so. We have to choose to walk by faith in Christ's victory. This is uh, verse 11, the first of three different imperatives in the whole text. There's only three types of instruction in this whole text. A lot of it's just describing of what happened when Christ died at the cross, and we died with him. But he gives us three things to do in light of this. And the first is you also, in verse 11, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to. You can choose not to. That's the nature of an imperative, a uh, command. You cannot live in light of this truth, or you can live in light of this truth. And consider is like this accounting term, and I'm not going to nerd out on you, but it means to impute to an account just like Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's the same word. It's to declare something to be true and to reckon it true that is true, right? It's, it, we don't make it true by our reckoning. God has declared these things to be true, and we are agreeing with the mind and heart of God. I have died with Christ, and I've been raised with him. By faith, I'm going to count it so. I'm going to choose. I, I need to know these things. I can't believe in something that I don't know, so we have to start with I need to know these things. 
But knowing them, blessed are you if you do them, if you believe and act on these truths that you know. Paul, in Galatians 2, verse 20, many of you know the verse, might even be some of your favorite verses, but this is pivotal for what it looks like to walk this out by faith. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I've got both of these realities that are glorious, tr gloriously true. I am not my own anymore. The old me is dead and crucified. I have, past tense, been crucified with Christ. And now it's not me who lives. Not my own strength, not my own attitudes, not my own opinions, not my own wants or desires. I have been crucified with Christ. And now, praise his name. This is all joy and freedom. He lives in me. And now I need to consider it so. In the everyday moments of my life, the life that I live in the flesh, still have to live it. I live by faith in the Son of God. Because it's faith that takes the victory. It, it's not our striving alone that takes the victory. But faith chooses to believe that what God says is true is true and then acts on it whether I feel like it or not. So it's not a matter of waking up and saying, I don't feel, I don't see how that could possibly be true. I don't feel dead to sin. I don't, f I feel very much like sin has mastery over me. But faith goes to God's word and reads and hears and listens and believes I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but I choose to walk by faith in the Son of God. I think one of the best illustrations of this in the Old Testament is when the Israelites are charged with taking the land and they go to follow Joshua. Now Joshua and Caleb were the only two that had this faith to say, let's take the land. God has given it to us. Now let's go possess it. The people saw the giants. The people didn't have faith to go in and take what God had already given to them. And God's word says they were not able to enter. They were not able to possess the land because of their unbelief. Now the next generation arises. The giants didn't get any smaller. The leader didn't get different. They didn't get a different. I mean, Joshua is still there at the head leading them into the land, a picture of Christ. And at the beginning of Joshua, we hear God saying, I have given you the land and I will give it to you. It's, they're both true. It's gloriously true. I have given you victory. Now go get it. This is the reality of what it looks like to walk by faith. I, I, he says, I have crucified you with Christ and I've raised you to walk in newness of life. Now you go crucify the flesh with its passions and desires and walk by my spirit. It's a choice to walk in by faith. So this is the third main point and where we're diving in mainly this morning. We must present our members not to sin for unrighteousness. We need to take off. The Bible uses this take off and put on language. We, we're called to not do something first. Don't present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead present them as slaves of righteousness to God. We have these things that are declaratively true of us. We have to reckon them true by faith, and then faith always obeys. Faith always results in action. Faith does not sit there and wait for some feeling to act on it. Faith says, God has said, do not present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. And so we're going to consider this morning, what does that look like in the fringes of our lives? Not just to agree with this on paper, but to actually get into our members and say, what does it look like to take off me and to live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me? What does it look like to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the second imperative of the text both back-to-back back in verses 12 and 13. 
So Romans 6, 12 and 13. And I'm going to read 14 for bonus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is only possible because Christ has won victory for you. If you hear that and you don't get the, the therefore because of all that Christ has done, you will be stuck in futility, trying always to overcome sin by your own strength, by your own striving, instead of recognizing Christ has won the victory for you now. He has freed you into his freedom. You need to, you, this is a command to us, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. It's a choice. You stop. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 19, we see the same thing. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Now, this word for instrument, a lot of times if you hear instrument, you may picture one of these things. But the, the word for instrument is like an implement. It, it's a, everywhere else, it's like a weapon. It's a tool. So here they don't know how to do, like present your... King James just keeps weapons and everywhere else it's like, well, it doesn't really mean weapons here. It's kind of metaphorical for, but it does. It's a tool. Present the members of your body as a weapon, as a tool for righteousness. You, you're, the members of your body are always, always, always going to be building up or tearing down. You are, you are building up in the domain of darkness or you're building up in the kingdom of his beloved son. You, your members are tools. They're weapons. There's no neutrality with the members of your body. And so this is the pattern in scripture. You have died with Christ, therefore put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. It's only possible to put them to death because you have died. So we see this in Colossians. You've died. Your life's hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, therefore put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death what's earthly in you. So this is the format we're going to follow. We're going to put off, don't present to your members for this, but instead put on, present to God. Um, some of these members of our body we're going to camp out on and some are just going to be rapid fire. But my main point, what I want us to get in this is that Christ is king over all of your members and he cares about all of it. All of us for all of him. So first, we need to present our hearts to him as instruments of righteousness. This is where we have to begin. The world says, follow your heart. The world says, uh, you need to discover your truth. You need to, uh, this is pervasive right now, that at the end of the day, you got to bet on yourself. You got to follow your heart. And there's Christian versions of this where it's like, I've got this personal relationship with God and it's just me and him. And at the end of the day, I just got to do what I know to be right here that's cut off from the surrounding community and from ultimately the word of God. But Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? So we need to realize first that my heart is prone to self-deception to a blindness that thinks that I'm right in my own eyes. It's prone to self-justification. And it's not prone to confession, to seeking out cleansing and walking in the light like he is in the light. So I need to put off a trust in myself and a following of my own heart and an independence. And I need to put on agreeing with God about my heart and letting him cleanse my heart and making me, this is big, wholehearted. Hebrews 10, I want, to, I want to start here because this is, we have to start with the gospel and what he does with our hearts when we come to him. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 through 22, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of Christ has removed our guilt from us and we now have freedom to draw near, this is big, with a true heart. Not with a half heart, not with a partial heart, with a true heart, with the full assurance of faith. In verse 17 of our text, Paul says, Thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. From the heart. We must not be like those who would draw near to God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Where we come to this message and we say, yes, I want to present the members of my body as instruments of righteousness, and we give them all these members and obedience and all the members, but not our hearts. We're called to trust God with all of our heart, to love him with all of our heart, to set our hearts, to seek him, to resolve, to follow him, to learn the secret of a heart-level contentment in Christ so that I'm not seeking to fill up through my members all of the dissatisfaction or emptiness that I feel or sense because I'm not experiencing a greater satisfaction in Christ. If I don't start here and I'm not learning the contentment of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, then I will seek contentment everywhere else through the members of my body. We have to begin with the heart level contentment in Christ. And so may our prayer be, God, I don't I don't want to be half-hearted as I present myself to you. I want, I want all, all of me, all for you. I don't want to come away from this message with a new resolve for one of my members to be sanctified while my heart stays far from you. So God, I want to begin, please don't just have my best efforts elsewhere. I want to draw near with a true heart. And I want to give you a true heart. And give you for, I'm going to have to give you some for, like, for further study because we we're going to have to move. So you go to James 4, verse 8 through 10, God jealously desires your heart and your worship. And so this is the kind of language he uses to believers who are half-hearted. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He wants hearts that, it's an instruction to you, purify your hearts, double-minded. So we go from here to our minds, present our minds to him as instruments of righteousness. Transformation begins here in the mind. Paul writes in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Your mind informs your desires. It, it is the front door of your life. I remember Kayla and I lived, this is going to give her bad memories. Um, we, we, we lived in an apartment in Atlanta or a house in Atlanta before we moved here and we had a rat problem. Nobody likes a rat problem. It was, and there were rats. It's not like these little mice that we get here. And, um, and so I would put out traps and, and the traps would catch a rat and then I'd have to put out more and it was like an endless supply of rats. And I realized, oh, there was a hole in the wall and every time I put out a trap, mice were, I mean, rats were coming from outside into where the traps were to be killed by the traps. And unless I plugged where the hole was, I was going to continue to have an endless supply of rats to kill. And in the same way, your mind is like the door of your life. We can talk about all these other members that follow from here, your eyes, your hands, the rest of your body. But what are you allowing into your mind that is then giving diet to your desires and that then lead to the passions of your body and, and sin reigning in your body just because of what you're allowing into your mind? So we need to take off. We, 2 Corinthians 10, 15, Paul says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So presenting our minds to Christ looks like taking inventory of your thoughts. And for some of us, I wonder how long it's been since you actually did this where you caught yourself thinking anxious thoughts and you actually took thoughts captive and made them obey the master of your mind. Where you had bitter thoughts, 
and you said, no, I will not entertain these thoughts. These must obey Christ. And instead, you went and meditated on some truth of Scripture and drove out thoughts that did not obey Jesus with thinking the thoughts of God after him. This is true for lustful thoughts, angry thoughts, thoughts of self-pity or of self-loathing or of selfish gain. We have to frisk the thoughts of our minds with verses like Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do the thoughts of your life fit through that sieve? What, what makes it through? What are your inputs? This is so important for disi being disciplined with our minds for the sake of life and joy. You can't sow seeds of a distracted mind and expect fruit of a sanctified mind. We can't expect that we have this prevailing prayer if we can't pray without our phones distracting us every two seconds. Like, this, they don't fit together. We're not going to see power in our lives if we've got an unsanctified or distracted mind. So the question is, does Christ have lordship over your thoughts and where you're putting your minds? In Colossians 3, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so we choose to put our minds in his word and meditate there day and night so that he can be sanctifying us in his truth because his word is truth. You cannot expect that what you allow into your mind or to grab from the next one, what you allow to come into your mind even through your eyes, through your ears, to have no effect on your life when it is a diet for your soul. And so we need to take our thoughts captive and meditate in God's word and have the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. So what it looks like to abide in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you. And then he restates the same thing again a few verses later, but the way that he phrases I in you is my words abide in you. If you abide in me and I in you, a few verses later, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. This is how we come to God and he abides in us by marinating our mind in his truth and allowing him to give us the mind of Christ. This is a powerful thing. This is only possible because Jesus won the victory for us. In one place, Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. And in another place, he says, let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is a choice. You have been given the mind of Christ but you have to let it be in you by thinking his thoughts after him, by meditating in his word. You can look for further study, Romans 8, 5 through 6. Third, present your eyes as instruments of righteousness. Controlling the inputs with our mind, with our eyes is so vital. Jesus, so in terms of taking off, we want to take off lust, take off eyes that only look to ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew 5, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Says Jesus, that sounds intense. Maybe he's just using hyperbolic language. He's saying, look, it is better for part of, to lose part of you than to lose all of you. And you will lose all of you. If you let this sin go unchecked, unrepented of, you try to have a sin management strategy where you have just a little lust problem. A little lust problem with your eyes and undisciplined eyes is like having a little rattlesnake in your bed. You don't manage sin. You have to put it to death. And Jesus says, get radical with it. Just, so today it's just a, a wake-up call. Don't present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't present your eyes to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. They don't belong to you anymore. Present your eyes to Jesus as an instrument for his use. So what does that look like? What to put the fear of God before your eyes and to see him and to see people. 
In Romans 3, verse 18, that's true of the non-believing world. They have no fear of God before their eyes. So what should be true of us? That God, in all of his holiness, is front and center. And I'm, I'm seeing him and I'm looking to him. So the question for us is, how can the same eyes that behold the glory of Christ look upon another lustfully? And I think the only way is we took our eyes off of Christ we lost sight of the fear of God and we've instead sought to fill up what is lacking in us by looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in other places through our eyes. But the eyes of man are never satisfied. So lift your eyes to Christ. Run the race before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let him use your eyes to see people around you as he sees them, to see the poor, to see people in need, to see people in need of the gospel. It's so easy for us to be so locked into our own mind and our own activity that we don't even see people. I was in Costco the other day. I was with my mom, and we, I walked right past this lady who was eyeing these heavy bags of birdseed, and she was old and couldn't lift them herself. I walked right past her just in the zone, and my mom goes, do you need help? He can lift these for you. <laughs> but it's like a little illustration or a parable, Right? Your eyes can be so locked in on you. Take off using your eyes for self-gratification and put on using your eyes to see God and people and to see your neighbors. Jesus, you can look it up in Matthew 25 later in verse 37 through 40. It's a famous passage where he says, to the extent that you did it to these, you did it to me. But every verse it says, you saw, you saw, you saw, you saw these people in need. You saw them in prison. You saw them hungry and fed them. So it starts by seeing, allowing him to use your eyes as instruments of righteousness. Present your ears as instruments of righteousness. You got to put off and refuse to listen to gossip and to slander. You, just, you can't do it. You, you need ears that choose to listen to what Christ would choose to listen to. This is getting real practical into the nitty gritty of your life. And this is big. Ears that choose to listen to community for what that could be. Because you might go into some legalism as like, oh, Christ would only listen to, you know, Christian radio station. And I can just tell you that's not true. Uh, but, you, but the big thing is you need to listen to God's word and you need to listen to the church around you to be able to speak into your life for the, what is honoring to Christ. So just in the same way, this is really an input into your mind. If I'm constantly meditating on what is godless, or what is vile, letting it come through my ears, then I can't expect to have a vitality in my spiritual life if I'm like cutting myself off at every other turn. We need ears that are quick to listen to God and to people. For further study, you can look at Zechariah 7, 12 and 13. God talks about people making their hearts diamond hard because they refuse to listen to him. And so his response is, you refuse to listen to me, I won't listen to you. So what God's word is clear. If I harbor iniquity in my heart, unrepentant sin, God will not hear me. And so we need ears that are open to what he has to say, and his ears will be open to our cries. Present your mouth as an instrument of righteousness. We're going to take off dishonoring speech, drunkenness, drug use, gluttony, which doesn't get talked about in the church very often. We're going to present ourselves as our mouths as members of righteousness. So we have to remember, I'm going to give an account for every idle word that I speak. Every single one. The ones that we mutter under our breath that nobody hears, we have to give an account for that. In Ephesians 4, 25 and 29, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good, as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So I want to put off speech that tears down, put off speech that talks about people when they're not around, puts off being people's third source for news, and put on words that fit the occasion. 
And knowing God's words so that you know how to speak hard words and you know how to speak encouraging words, words that fit, words that build up. We want to put off substance abuse. Paul talks about, I will not be dominated by anything. The body is meant for the Lord. Or in Ephesians 5, he says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The same applies to gluttony. We can use our mouth as a means of sinning against God, being controlled by something else, even if for most of you, it's not some substance that leads you to an intoxication and being controlled by something else. You could just be controlled by your appetites. But Paul writes in Philippians 3 that this is characteristic of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their belly and who glory in their shame. So we're going to put off those things and instead put on encouraging speech, bold proclamation of Christ, confession of and renouncing sin, listening, fasting. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, only that which is good for building up. So that's putting on, not just putting off this. We're going to put on building up believers in Jesus. I want to put on declaring the gospel boldly, Paul says, as I ought to speak. I want to present my mouth, Jesus, my mouth today is yours as an instrument of righteousness. Present your arms and hands to him for righteousness. Take off gratifying your flesh or taking or violence. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And instead, put on working skillfully, using your strength for God and for people, serving, giving, blessing. God, these hands belong to you today. I don't want to use them to gratify myself or to serve myself. I want to use them to serve you and people. Show me the good works that you've prepared beforehand for me to walk in. Use my strength for your kingdom today, Father. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then as we do the work of building in God's kingdom, we pray, God, establish the work of my hands. Establish the work of our hands, Father, as, as we seek to build up your kingdom. God, teach me to use my hands to, to raise them in worship. These hands belong to you while I'm singing. I'm not just... If he says, lift up his hands and praise his name, then it's not just like a personality type contest. It's a, it's a, wow, I can lift up holy hands and praise the Lord. And I can learn to do that. If he says, use your hands to bless people, then I learn how to do that. God, if you want to use my hands, then however you want to use them, they're instruments of righteousness. Present your sexual parts to him as instruments of righteousness. Take off every form of acting on lust. Every form of self-seeking, even in marriage. If you're seeking yourself, present your members to God as an instrument of righteousness, of love, of selflessness, of holiness. Put on marital fidelity. Put on celibacy and singleness, self-control. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, there it is again, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body, all of it. It all belongs to him. And it matters every day to present yourself to Jesus. God, I praise you that I have died with Christ and now I am free to consider it so and to present all my members to you as instruments of righteousness. You could add here, before I close out with the feet, your knees. To live life from your knees. Say, God, these knees belong to you. And for so long, I refused to get on my knees in weakness, to bow before you in prayer. But God, would you use my knees to put me on my face before you? God, this face that's so quick to look everything else, what it deserves to be prostrate before you. Use it. 
Present your feet to him as instruments of righteousness. Take off. I'll put here busyness. But what I mean is a busyness that's not God-directed. There's a way to end your days exhausted for the glory of God. And that is right and good. But we have to put off a self-directed busyness that looks like I'm God, I've got so much activity, so much stuff to do, and I'm going, 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 and I'm not at rest. I'm not stopped before a holy God with a life that has margin built into it, not just because we're not God, but because God rests. And so we need to take off a busyness and going our own way, and we need to use our feet to run to God and run to others in need. We need to use our feet to show up. This is always this huge plea from your pastors to you and to people that are watching online. We need to show up for each other. We need to use our feet to physically gather as the people of God. We need to use our feet to get to our discipleship groups or to get to our MCs so that we can build up each other in love instead of God leading us and us digging in our heels to do what we want. We need to put on, God's word says, preparedness for the gospel and surrender to God's leading. But Paul talks about in the armor of God, your feet being prepared, shod by the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And inherent to being a disciple of Christ is a going, go and make disciples. And if we're always using our feet to go our own way, then we will not go into all the world and proclaim Christ in all of life. And so we need feet that are surrendered to go where he wants us to go, to our neighbors and to the nations. So, that's a lot, that's a rapid fire. I wanna give you some parting, parting words, parting exhortations. And then we're going to take communion together. If you're in Christ, every part of you belongs to him. And he cares about all of it. He has enabled you, set you free from being enslaved to sin, and he has set you free into the joy of him being your master. And that mastery is over all of us. And these are choices that we need to make based on what he has declared to be true over us. You have died. He has set you free. And sin will no longer be master over you. Praise his name. That's a promise. Now, consider it so and walk it out. Go take the land. I have given it to you. Everywhere that you go, it will belong to you. Now go get it. It is an act of faith and obedience that acts not based on how we feel but on what God has said and I think that's one of the main things that I would push you to is this requires what Jerry Bridges called grace-fueled effort it is a toiling and an effort on your part it's going to feel like work but it's not me it's the grace of God in me it is him supplying the energy and the strength to do what only he can do as you set your heart to do it. Paul writes it like this from Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working and we are working. He is working in, he has accomplished the victory in Christ and now he calls you, go work out by faith and obedience what I am working in. It is Paul in Colossians 1 saying, look, we proclaim Christ, we warn everyone, we teach everyone so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so I think about it the same way that we think about giving. He multiplies seed to the sower. 
If he knows that you're giving, he multiplies money to you to be able to give away because you're a spreader. And he multiplies grace to those who use it for obedience. A lot of times, the grace to obey, the strength for it, comes when you have set your heart to obey. The waters part when? When they put their foot in. Not before. The the water hardened up under Peter's feet, not before he stepped out of the boat, but when he chose to act in obedience and act by faith. And then the supernatural happened. And the same thing happens for us as we know that we have died to sin, consider it so, that we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then by faith, presenting ourselves, all of our members as instruments, tools, weapons for righteousness and not for unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the truth, the reality that Christ has conquered sin and death and that you leave for us, Lord Jesus, your victory, not to accomplish on our own, but for us to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you in Christ Jesus, that you've given us your spirit to work these things out as we walk by you and not by the desires of our flesh. You've called us to by your spirit be putting to death the deeds of the body. And if we do, we will live. Lord, the outcome of those things of which we're now ashamed is death. Help us to see it. Help us to remember it. Help us to not make peace with sin or to try to manage sin. But I pray that you would move in us to pursue holiness and the fear of God, knowing that you are at work in us and that you will complete the work that you've started in us. Your goal is that we would be like Christ in every single part of our life with every part of who we are. And so we pray, Father, that you would come and search us, show us where we've been presenting the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness. God, lead us to repentance. Give us grace to repent and change and pursue sanctification as we walk with you by the light of your word, and we choose to act on what you have said to be true. Lord, may it be true of us that we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, may we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We just cry together as a church with all of our heart, God, all of us, all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.